from the Midtown Detroit studios of WDET. This is Detroit Today. Are we living in a shameless society? The answer may appear simple considering the rise of politicians like Donald Trump, George Santos, and Marjorie Taylor Greene, who seem to court controversy as part of their brand without suffering political consequences. But is this evidence of a greater problem in society? And if so, can we fix it? We'll sit down with two experts and you to examine if we're living in a post-shame America and what that might mean for our society moving forward. That's next on Detroit Today, but first the news from NPR. I'm Nick Austin, filling in for Stephen Henderson. Don't kill the part of you that is cringe. Kill the part of you that cringes. Let me ask you, when you hear a phrase like this, does it sound like good advice? And what is the sentiment it's trying to express? About a month ago, I saw this meme circulating the internet, and it stuck with me. At its basic level, I suspect many hear a phrase like this and interpret the meaning as, Don't worry about what other people think, just do you. And I think we all appreciate that sentiment. Should I feel embarrassed when the guys on the football team give me guff about taking ballroom dancing as one of my electives? And if I do, does that mean I should drop the class even if my tango is impeccable? Probably not. But recent events and headlines in the news also have me wondering whether there may be something more insidious at play with a phrase like that. Take, for example, the following. After Republican presidential candidate Donald Trump was found liable for sexually abusing and defaming advice columnist E. Jean Carroll in a civil court, his campaign continued without any hint of slowing down. Indeed, he has continued to call the case a scam, even though a jury found his prior statements calling her case a complete con job defamatory. Or look at a case, the case of New York Congressman George Santos, who followed his following his indictment for 13 counts of financial crimes, including defrauding donors and wrongfully claiming unemployment benefits. And despite a myriad of documented falsehoods exposing him as less than trustworthy, he's calling the investigation against him a witch hunt. These are merely two examples. But when you consider them in the context of other actions like the January 6th insurrectionists who proudly live-streamed themselves storming the Capitol, or to the length some will go to drum up content like a social media influencer who recently was convicted of filing a false police report after making a viral video claiming a fake kidnapping, it has many wondering one simple question. Are we living in a shameless society? For you listening now, I suspect the answer to this question seems easy. There was a time as recently as the days of scandals facing politicians like Elliot Spitzer and Anthony Weiner, those types of things would have ended careers. But events like these have me wondering a lot about where shame, where guilt, where cringe even, fit into modern America. What is shame? Has its influence changed in modern society? How much effect should shame have on our culture and politics? Is feeling a bit of cringe possibly a good thing? And what would a society without shame, without guilt, without cringe even look like? To help us answer these questions and more, we're joined by two excellent guests. Jennifer Jacquette is an associate professor of environmental studies at New York University. She's also the author of Is Shame Necessary? New Uses for an Old Tool. Professor Jacquette, welcome to Detroit Today. Thanks for having me. We're also joined by Dr. Laura Brown, who is an expert on national elections, candidate strategies, and political scandals. Dr. Brown, welcome to Detroit Today. Uh, Thanks for having me. It's great to be here. 
It's great having you both. And I guess I'll start from the jump with uh, Professor Jaquette, as you did write the book, so to speak, on shame and the necessity of it, though it was almost a decade uh, since that book came out. So let's just start here, Professor. What is shame? How would you define it? So shame can be confusing because it's both an experience and a tool. And so shame as an experience, some people say it's it's this feeling of social exposure. It's an impression about how you feel the audience feels about you. And it also says something about your deeper self, which is this is distinct from embarrassment, which also requires an audience. But I'm more interested as shame as a tool. Um, And again, that involves social exposure, exposing a transgressor to an audience and um, and how that can can work positively for society, as well as, of course, in many cases that you've cited it, it less positive ways. Well, then let's unpack that. Uh, We're talking about the less positive ways, or we're going to have an example of where shame operates right now in our political system and socially, but you did mention it can be used for positive good. What were some of the Mm -hmm. positives that you found uh, in terms of shame uh, in writing your book and in your research? Yeah, and and something I continue to track. So you you open the show with this example of being shamed um, by football players, right, for taking ballroom dancing. This to me is a classic misuse of shame. Um, it's it says it, it's shaming you for basically uh, you know not having the proper masculinity and and partaking in things that actually don't affect the other players on the team whatsoever. Now imagine they were instead shaming you for. Um, getting out of shape and jeopardizing the future of of the success of the team to me that automatically categorizes in a different in a different bin and it says oh well this is something that we're all in it together we're all on the same team and we are working toward a common goal and so that use of shame might have a more positive outcome you know for the group so the ways that i think about shame especially then is scale that up and and don't even involve individuals who then may, you know, feel badly about themselves, go home, weep in the shower. But think about shaming institutions or corporations who are not behaving in accordance with our collective goals and vision for society. And that's, I think, where things get interesting. One group that, that I really like is shames banks that are most heavily invested in the dirtiest fossil fuels. And they know that banks have a choice of where they put their money. And so they, you know, launch these major um, shaming campaigns to get J.P. Morgan, for instance, to divest their funds from mountaintop removal, which is a form of of coal mining. So uh, I get interested in that kind of, of shame against large companies that are undermining our collective vision for the future. Well, I think there are a lot of people out there who are listening right now who would agree that those are positive uses of shame and can be used as a collective to, again, hold the powerful accountable, maybe hold a business accountable because you can't throw a business in jail. How do you hold it accountable? But then also that would be a tool that's used by society generally. And we would wonder, are there effective guardrails behind it? So in terms of what you've seen, uh, has sh- shame can run amok. You've mentioned it. Is there a way to curtail it or make sure we're using it properly without using it uh, in the negative fashion, that, like the example you brought up? Yeah, and, and uh, you brought up a lot of examples of shamelessness. And I think that's also now powerful um, in society because people, almost the more you act outside of the social norms, the more attention that you get. And we know that the attention economy is where we are. There, we're dying for eyeballs. We're dying to be on the stage, especially for these politicians, right? So one of the worries is that shaming is a little bit like antibiotics, that you can overuse it and then deflate its effectiveness. And that is a scenario that we find ourselves in currently. Also, with that repeated shamelessness, you can really undermine those social norms. You know, it may be that future presidents also don't um, submit to the public that their their tax returns, because we have now a precedent for that among an elected president. 
And so there are all these dangers, both in terms of the guardrails, in terms of how the, the tool is used, but also the guardrails for the social norms themselves. They they may be eroded very, very quickly as a result of these grand acts of shamelessness that are ultimately to, to get attention and um, fundamentally, in, in many cases, to get votes. Yeah, and that brings us to you, Dr. Brown, because this is the question I've really been thinking about. And I think a lot of people have been thinking about, like an antibiotic, has shame worn off as a proper tool in politics? Where do you see shame fitting in our political structure right now? Well, I agree that shamelessness is a part of the incentive structure at the moment because social media and eyeballs on your account actually help with fundraising. But I I approach sort of political scandals from a very different perspective. And I have for over 25 years when I started my research on um, sort of my dissertation, which was about incumbent scandals in Congress. And the issue is really that a scandal itself is typically a private transgression on behalf of someone in public office that then becomes public. And in that process of something being a private transgression to then being publicly revealed, it is typically understood that that individual's reputation will fall or be hurt. And so through that process, there is there is an expectation, right? So there is an expectation about what you think an elected official should be or is. And then there is something that they did which surprises you because it doesn't fit with your expectation. And if it's sufficiently um, sort of, you know, problematic enough, you become scandalized over what they did. And that's what creates the outrage around the scandal. Well, there are a lot of problems with that right now, because for one, um, most of our politicians who are shameless essentially set the expectation so low about their behavior that nothing ever is surprising. So you are never scandalized by say what Marjorie Taylor Greene does or once we all learned about George Santos, what he does because you've already become inoculated to it. Then the second piece of of this problem is that our overall culture Um, kind of thrives off of people being willing to debase themselves. So when you think about reality television or you think about sort of what gains um, attention or excitement or talk, right? It's all about, oh, it started with just people, you know, eating worms on Big Brother or something. (laughs) (laughs) To now, you know, we're at a place where anything goes. And because anything goes, there's then no standard. So then you're not scandalized. And so this is that problem you were getting at with that quote um, that you let off the show with about sort of if you no longer cringe, then you're not scandalized by anything. And we as a culture and society are unwilling to kind of create a moral standard for fear of what it may mean in your judging of others. So this would lead me to the question, which I think you're getting at right there, right? Because theoretically, it would be the people that would hold someone accountable. If your base level of what you thought to be embarrassing was zero, then theoretically the society would say, hey, you as a politician, you're disqualified. We'd never elect you, but we do. So then to the extent that the folks, the people are accountable to this and you said they're not interested in holding someone accountable, I guess, uh, can you further unpack why that might be and if there's any way that you see that we could change that to perhaps now hold political uh, or political leaders a little bit more accountable? Well, partisans um, generally are typically unwilling to hold their own partisans accountable. So what I mean by that is 
when you look at scandal and how it plays out within politics, it tends to work in such a way where um, parties end up defending members who are embroiled in scandal largely because they want to keep the seat, whatever that seat is. And then they also know that if they elect or allow the election of somebody of good character from the opposition party, it will be incredibly difficult for them to then win that seat back in a future election. So one of the perverse incentives is that the only way you really get individuals out of office who are incumbents with scandals is to essentially have them be taken out by their own party in the primaries because primaries are really where parties have character elections as opposed to general elections which are largely policy or partisan elections. We're speaking with Dr. Laura Brown, an expert on national elections, candidate strategies, and political scandals, as well as Professor Jennifer Jacquet, an associate professor of environmental studies at New York University and the author of Is Shame Necessary? New Uses for an Old Tool. But we want to speak with you as well. Do you think we're living in a shameless society? Is this a good thing or a bad thing? And how does shame, guilt, and embarrassment show up in your life? Do things like scandals and the same shame associated with them have any effect on the way that you vote for people or the folks that you follow? Give us a call, 313-577-1019. Again, that's 313-577-1019. And we'll work you into the conversation just like we're doing right now with Bernadette in Old Redford. Bernadette, go ahead. You're on Detroit Today. Good morning. I tell you where it shows up in my life is in entertainment. For example, if you contrast shows that I remember when I was little, Father Knows Best, Leave It to Beaver, with shows that are popular now like Succession and The White Lotus, I'm scandalized. They seem almost pornographic Mm. in their vulgarity and their coarseness. Um, And the descriptions of realism in special effects like decapitations or gunshot wounds or severed limbs, Man, <laughs> <laughs> it's pretty. It's pretty good TV, though. There, Bernadette. I don't know. It's kind of salacious, but I get your point, and I do appreciate you bringing that up. It kind of dovetails into what Big Neo on Twitter said. He mentioned that you know there there is a lot of shamelessness in America when politicians commit the acts they do, banning books and committing crimes. But one of the worst things has to be the YouTuber who crashed a plane on purpose for likes and subscribers. It's interesting, Big Neo. That was something I was thinking of also bringing up in the introduction because it is something that I have been following as well. So I present that to you, the question from Bernadette and those comments, uh, uh, Professor Jacquette. How do you? think that fits in to where we're at right now with shame in America? Yeah, again, I think um, you have this question of the norm. What is the norm? And I think the concern here is more about the changing norms. Um, And therefore, it appears to be shamelessness. But in fact, it's not really shamelessness if there isn't an agreed upon norm that this is not not acceptable. Um, And so the ways that, you know, cable and then later, you know, um, things like HBO and subscribe only platforms, the liberties that they can take. And this is not your your sort of evening on ABC, right? Right. There's no sort of family television anymore. And as a result of that, you do get these highly differentiated markets for for television. and, And I think just really changing norms around what is considered appropriate. I don't think I, I don't I'm not sure that's shamelessness as much as it is this this just widely changing market. There's just not an agreed upon culture the way that there was fifty years ago in America. And this is all part of that. And but I think the the political examples are sort of more interesting because they're as as um Dr. Brown was saying there are these agreed upon norms that sort of become evident in a general election, right, where you're trying to vie for president. You are trying to get the entire country behind you. And so in some ways that allows us, I think, a a more 
specific looks at look at the norms because you know that it's not about oh can I get an audience of two or three hundred thousand people, but that I have to fight for for you know half of the country's votes. And I do think you know as much as we say we talk about this kind of shamelessness, you know. Trump would have been the incumbent president. Everything pointed to him winning again. And um, and he didn't win. And, you know, there are a variety of reasons for that that we could go on and on about. But I think, you know, the 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 shamelessness and the constant vying for for attention just became a little bit, you know, annoying to the American public. And so there, there's a risk of yeah. that. I mean, I think he shows that risk as, as much as anyone. He also, of course, shows the benefits. There's a politician that I write about in, in my book, Antonis Marcus, who is, um, was the mayor, became the mayor of Bogota. Before that, he was the, the university president. And during um, one of the assemblies, the student body wouldn't, wouldn't sort of be, be quiet so he could speak. And so he mooned them. Oh. <laughs> and... Um, and he's very interesting because he had this obvious act of shamelessness, pretty, pretty severe, you know, um, and he lost his job as president of the university and then won a run for office for mm. the mayor of Bogota, for the city. Right. So and then he uses shame and shamelessness throughout his political career in really interesting ways. He hired hundreds of mimes, for instance, to mock and imitate and shame bad pedestrian and driving beha- behavior around the city and was very effective in reducing deaths as a result of traffic accidents. And he, he had all of these really creative uses of shame that I would say, you know, we've used a lot of examples sort of from the right, if you will. But he, he used a lot of uh, shame and shamelessness from the position of the left, which is, I think, um, also interesting, you know, as a, as a case yeah. study. Yeah. And, you know, I want to get into a little bit of that and how it fits into the political landscape with you, Dr. Brown, uh, when we return here on Detroit Today. But like I said, give us a call as we take a look at whether we're living in a post-shame America. Give us a call, 313-577-1019. And we're going to reach out to you on the phones, hear from you on Twitter, and check back in with Dr. Brown as we continue on Detroit Today in just a moment. Today on 1019 WDET, I'm Nick Austin filling in for Stephen Henderson as we took take a look at shame as well as scandal, where it fits into our modern consciousness politically as well as socially. Two great guests to discuss it. Dr. Laura Brown, an expert in national elections, candidate strategies and political scandals, as well as Jennifer Jaquette, an associate professor of environmental studies at New York University. We're going to hear from you in just a moment. But before I do that, Dr. Brown, I want to bring you back in because uh, a lot of the context of this conversation is how has things changed? Has the floor lowered But I would like to know historically uh, what the effect of scandal has had on our politics and for politicians historically. And specifically, do we see it showing up in any different way in terms of voter support as well as earning or funding, I should say, donations that candidates receive? Well, so the one thing I want to talk about is at least when you're looking at, say, Congress, right? Um, 435 members of the House, 100 members of the Senate. In a typical two-year congressional cycle, um, we really only have about eight to 10 scandals, things that we would consider to be scandalous, newsworthy, um, transgressive events by incumbents. And I think one of the things that is problematic right, is that so much of the media coverage actually does focus on those sort of 10 people who are doing really bad or off the wall or sometimes even criminal things. Um, And because of that, it also gives people a very distorted view of politics writ large. The vast majority of our politicians are actually in what is 
a sort of a larger conception of public service. They really did run to represent their constituents. They really are interested in advancing policy aims that will help um, not just their own partisan sort of supporters, but the country writ large with respect to their views. But there is this problem where you know, in any organization of around 500 people or more, you're going to have a percentage of people who are doing the wrong thing. And that does get most of the focus. Now, the problem is what do you do about those people? Well, traditionally, Congress has been very loath to expel members um, who've done bad things mostly because what an expulsion means is that you are overruling the votes of the people in the district who put those members there to begin with. Um, so when you think historically, I mean, you can go back to scandals like Adam Clayton Powell um, in the late 60s, where, you know, Powell sort of is eventually, you know, he takes many, many times of actually running and winning and then he eventually is is expelled and then he eventually wins again. So one of the things that is true is that we have to think about the tension between representation, voting and sort of national ethics. Because while Professor Jaquette's right that in a presidential election, you're still vying for the whole country. It is also the case that the reason why Republicans voted for Trump wasn't just because they liked Trump or they approved of, of him. It's because he was the Republicans nominee in November and they would always vote for that Republican nominee. He likely lost because independents actually view general elections as their kind of character election. And this is why independence becomes so important in the process because they are the ones who say, I don't really care about either party all that much, but what I do care about is the people who are in office. And oftentimes they are the ones putting their thumb on the scale. Yeah. But I think, you know, when you look back, you can also see that you know Trump's Access Hollywood tape then set the stage for his presidency being pretty shameless because the country said, well, we heard it, we heard it before the election, he was elected to the presidency, and then afterward, no matter what he did, well, he's a, he's been this shameless the whole time. So is that really a surprise or a shock or scandalous? Well, well, certainly. I think it goes to partisanship. As we mentioned a little bit before, the question would be certainly not subverting the will of the people, but the question would be, would actions like that be disqualifying or not when you find out beforehand if partisanship has us to the point where we say, no, I don't care, it doesn't matter that much. The question, the concern might be, does that mean we get more of it because we think Partisanship is more important or getting the candidate of our party is more important than maybe these sort of transgressions. It's something we're exploring today on Detroit Today, and uh, you can get involved with that conversation as well. 313-577-1019. I want to make sure to get to some calls, so we're going to start off with Rachel in Detroit. Rachel, go ahead. You're on Detroit Today. Hi. I think that scandal can be very uh, relative over history. And, you know, like when the clothing zipper came out, it was just seen as so scandalous that, you know, instead of unbuttoning or unfastening a garment, a woman could just take off her clothes with a zipper. And it was seen as like the downfall of society. Same thing with jazz music that, you know, even locally, Henry Ford fought so hard against by, you know, trying to revive square dancing. So I think that maybe 20 or 50 years from now, we're going to feel nostalgic for the 2020s and say, remember how everyone was just so wholesome back then? You know, that is an interesting point. I mean, that jazz music is pretty wild out there and it'll have an effect on you. Let me I listen to a lot of jazz and listen to me right now. It's probably pure insanity. But I, I give the question to you, uh, Professor Jaquette. Is this just something that's cyclical or what do you find uh, in terms of what Rachel has to say? 
No, I, I appreciate very much what you have to say in terms of, you know, anytime norms change, it's unsettling. Um, at the same time, we may really embrace those new norms eventually. The civil rights is another great example of yeah. that, you know, and, and not everyone is on board even still. And the thing about social norms is you really have to take care of them. They have to be sort of taught and uh, embraced and valued in the next generations or codified into law. Otherwise, you know, there is this risk. And I think the the risk that we keep referring to is this actual um, deep love and respect for democracy that I think is really, there's a worry that we haven't tended that norm enough. And that, as you were saying, that you might have not only partisanship, but that your party be in power supersedes the fundamental value of democracy to society. That seems like, you know, that also may we may look back on and think, wow, that was quaint, that period of democracy that we had in America, that global experiment. And we may wind up living under demagogues. Yeah. You know, this is this is possible. Yeah. Dr. Brown, I want to let you in on that uh, question as well from Rachel. Yeah. So I think one of the things that's interesting and it is true that norms are changing. Um, not only are we a less Christian nation than we've ever been. I mean, there's more secularism. We are also a more inclusive and diverse nation than we've ever been. And some of that is what's getting at this question of who makes the culture. Um, You know, what is the dominant um, understanding of our norms or our boundaries? But I think the, the one other thing that ends up being kind of important in this conversation, you know, is that so many people, um, kind of are loath to judge right now. Right. And when we think about how social media um, works, right, one of the things that's happened is that people put more and more kind of of themselves on social media. And that that question that you brought up at the beginning, the you do you has also made so many people kind of reticent to say, oh, you're wrong to be doing that. So some of what's going on is this testing of boundaries and these changes. I mean, I can tell you, having studied scandal for three decades, one of the things that is is very real is that about, I don't know, 15 years ago, my colleagues and I used to talk about what do we do when the Facebook generation um, starts getting elected to office because all of their lives are revealed on Facebook. All of the things that I, as a Gen Xer, right, um, you know, maybe did in high school that I wouldn't admit to now, <laughs> right, right, have mostly been hidden. Right. Well, yeah, then it gets but, normalized, right? Because you say, well, I'm not going to make fun of your past transgression if you don't make fun of mine or hold me to that, too. I mean, things do change over time. I'm sorry to cut you off there. Go ahead and finish up, Dr. Brown. Oh, no. And it's just this whole problem of, right, you know, when you are looking at the fact that that sort of millennials and Gen Z who are now starting to be elected into local and higher office, state office, they they have put their entire lives out there in the public. So why is it sort of a scandal if it's been out there their whole lives? Right. In other words, just the amount of transparency we have toward somebody's life and what they did is much more than what we used to have. So because the private has become so public, um, there is also a, you know, sort of don't throw stones at glass houses sort of problem. I, I Absolutely. I think that's a great point that you bring up there as uh, you're listening to Detroit Today. Get involved with the conversation. 313-577-1019. Again, 313-577-1019. To let us know, do you think we're living in a shameless society? Whether it's a good thing or a bad thing and how it shows up in your life as we move to Melissa in Metro Detroit. Melissa, go ahead. You're on Detroit Today. Uh, hi, Nick, and uh, hello to your guests. 
Um, so could it be that too much shame or like too deep of shaming actually created the shameless? Mm. Mm-hmm. I, I, then, I, good question. Go ahead. Oh, and then I, um, and then I'm also, I'm against shame, like using shame as a tool to change behavior. Um, it could change it in the short term, but not really in the long term because you've created like hurt and resentment. So that old behavior is going to come back or a new bad one's going to come. And then, and then I wonder if it's just, we like shame so much. There was the fella on the bike and he was shaming the white supremacists in Washington, DC, um, the other day. Right. And I liked it. I liked it. I'm like, <laughs> Oh, that's great. <laughs> and it felt so good. It was like a little revenge. Yeah. So yeah. Is it, we like mm-hmm. shame so much because it's revenge or because we think it really is going to change behavior. I don't know. Yeah. You know, Melissa, I think you bring up great points there. We love the shame when it's something that, uh, shaming someone we don't like, but then when it's coming, rocketing back towards us or something we do like might seem a little inappropriate in that moment. But, uh, professor Chiquette, I know that you have worked on this, uh, very much in terms of your research. Uh, what response do you have to Melissa there? Yeah, well, in general, so yes, again, shame like antibiotics, you overuse it, yeah. you dilute its effectiveness, 100%. But that said, I, I do think there is a strong role for shame as a tool. As I said, often it can be better used and, and effective against institutions, groups, because you don't have that personal experience, that deep pain that you're describing. But there are exceptions even to that rule. And there are even exceptions with the state using shame. So one example that I really like, uh, a bunch of states, but the state of California is very transparent about it, uh, have uh, policies to shame delinquent taxpayers. And they don't shame all of them. They shame only the top 500 delinquent taxpayers. These are people who do not pay their income tax and they are incredibly, incredibly wealthy. So they introduced a website and they have a shaming policy where they send an email that says, or a letter to those errant taxpayers and say, if you do not pay your taxes, if you do not pay your part of the social cost of, of being in America or being in the state of California, then we will post your name to this website. And it has been incredibly effective. It is just the threat of, of reputational damage toward the most delinquent and the richest people in California. These are people who owe millions of dollars in back taxes. And that worry, right, of social exposure gets them to pay. And I haven't seen, they, they actually, when they instituted this, this rule, um, they were a little bit worried about backlash, you know, even people coming and using violence against the, the tax office. Um, none of that has transpired. And it's been a very cost effective and very uh, galvanizing um, shaming policy by the state against individuals. I find it a really interesting case. Yeah, well, that's very interesting also to see effective use of it, of course, uh, in terms of these circumstances, a good example there. But when we return, we're going to take a look at what accountability looks like in today's society and how that interacts with shame. As you're listening to Detroit Today on 1019 WDET, we're speaking with Dr. Laura Brown and Professor Jennifer Chiquette. And we'll speak with you as well when we return in just a moment. WDET is your connection to what's happening in Detroit. WDET is your place for open dialogue about the issues that impact you. Stay in the know. This is WDET FM, Detroit's NPR station. Detroit Today on 1019 WDET. I'm Nick Austin filling in for Stephen Henderson as we take a look at where shame fits into our politics. Seeing articles out there asking, do we live in a shameless society? Are we living in a post-shame America as we look at uh, our political structure, as we look at folks on social media doing things for the clicks? And we're also talking to you. Want to know from you if you think we're living in a shameless society? Do you think things like scandals are that they're associated... 
your association with politicians? Does that have any effect on the way you vote? Partisanship, where does that play in? How does shame, guilt, embarrassment show up in your life? Give us a call, 313-577-1019, and we can work you into the conversation as well. We've got a tweet from Professing Professor who says, Politicians use this attention from bad behavior to raise money for their next campaign. It becomes a cycle. The more money they raise, the worse their behavior. Our society no longer values basic ethics and integrity. We also have a question from Mutant on Twitter. Is shunning the same as shaming? That is something that we'll get into in a moment. But at the same token, I kind of want to know what accountability looks like today in terms of our politicians, in terms of holding them accountable. And I leave that question, or I present that question to you, Dr. Brown, as you've been looking again at how scandal affects our politics for such a, a long period of time. How does accountability look like today? And uh, what does shame have to do with accountability in our modern politics? So I think what's happened is that the legal system has always been the floor for behavior, right? If you break a law, then certainly you shouldn't be um, permitted to retain or stay in office. But it was only the floor. And it seems as though the law is now the ceiling um, because in so many ways, um, we have decided that anything kind of bad but not criminal is fine. And that is problematic, that there is a relationship around we would rather have someone be authentically awful than be in any way kind of hiding or pretending to be good when they're not. So this gets to your caller's you know, point about has there been kind of this backlash to shame, like so much shaming created this backlash. And I do think um, some of that is true. That was part of what we actually saw in kind of the 1970s in terms of pushing back and throwing off so many of the older strictures about what made a good person. And everything became about being authentic. And so we now don't hold people to account if we think they are being authentic, even if that authenticity is awful or cruel or really outside the bounds of what we would consider to be good social behavior. You know, I think there's good insight there, but it's always interesting to me because, sure, I would want you to be authentically good, but if you were fake good, the ultimate result of your behavior would be good anyway. So, I mean, maybe it's not coming from the greatest place, but uh, I'll take it. <laughs> I prefer a good actions as opposed to ones that might harm folks. Uh, so it seemed right. like... I mean... Go ahead. I was just going to say, I mean, this is where so many individuals, and I think this is what Bernadette was getting at when she was talking about television shows, so many individuals were raised with this idea that, you know, if you don't have something nice to say, don't say it at all, right? That there was a certain kind of golden rule, like treat others as you want to be treated, and just kind of don't go out of your way to be bad. But unfortunately, it is the the badness or the transgression that does attract attention. And people in today's world would rather have notoriety than anonymity. And that is where we also have kind of lost our sense of boundaries and social norms. Dr. Brown, you said something very interesting earlier. You're saying how the law used to be the floor, but now it's become the ceiling as we're not as uh, politicians aren't holding themselves up to a higher standard. Uh, do you have any ideas or insights as to how we can raise that ceiling back up in our modern climate? What would it take? Is this something that you've looked into and what do you think we need to do to get there? Well, I think the difficult part is, is that we don't have this unifying underlying culture, right? Our culture appears to be a race to the bottom um, because, you know, going to this idea of television shows like Naked and Afraid as though 
you know, how is that anything representative of positive aspects of humanity? Um, we're really kind of culturally existing in somewhere between, you know, might makes right with Game of Thrones and Lord of the Flies with our survivor type world. So I think the hard part is we have to start thinking about how do we ask people to be better? And most people are fearful of asking people to kind of raise their standard because it involves some sort of normative morality. And no one wants to agree on what is a normative morality. Mm. We're speaking again with Dr. Laura Brown, an expert on national elections, candidate strategies and political scandals, as well as uh, Jennifer Jaquette, an associate professor of environmental studies at New York University. And we could speak with you as well. We've got time before we close out the show. Give us a call. 313-577-1019. Again, 313-577-1019. If you want to get involved with this conversation, which we're having about are we living in a shameless society? If so, is it a negative, positive or what? What do you think we need to do to change it to be able to hold our politicians especially more accountable? Uh, I also kind of have that same question, though, for you, Professor Chiquette, in terms of what you're seeing. As again, I am hearing a lot about uh, this race to the bottom. And certainly with uh, less institutional structures, uh, there's not the same global sense of what morality would be for all of us. I can understand why some people would be concerned about that. But how do you see that we could work ourselves back to uh, raising the ceiling of our expectations of each other? Yeah, so one, uh, I, I hear this this comment on not having kind of a shared normative values, or the you do you, right? Yeah. But here's my simple rule of thumb. You do you, but not at my expense. Right. So when we have these collective problems, like education, like taxes, like climate change, uh, we have to think collectively, behave collectively. We can't you do you and me do me because you're, what you do comes at my expense. And of course, that's also true for these new gun laws. And as a result, I, I hear what Dr. Brown is saying, too, about most actually politicians have this, this view of civil service and they're, they're scandal free. But we, we all have this sense that, you know, corporate interests, greed, um, the pursuit of money at all costs has crept into our politics. It seems to be the driving factor that this really isn't about what the country wants overall, but about what special interests want. And that's true on so many of these large collective action problems. So my main rule of thumb with, with shaming, the kind of seven habits I have of, of effective shaming, but the first is that the transgression should involve the audience. So your intro example that, um, you know, football players shaming a player for ballroom dancing is a perfect example of a misuse of shame because it doesn't affect them whether or not you ballroom dance. But if you are ExxonMobil and you're standing in the way of climate policy as well as polluting and jeopardizing our collective future on this planet, I think that's a time for us all to come together and, and use our, our power of, of shame um, against, against these major companies that are stripping us of our, of our possibility and future on this planet. So um, my, my short rule of thumb is that I think the 21st century norms are going to congeal around these issues that involve all of us. And I think we're in this real period of sort of, again, moving from, you know, the Christian nation that we once were to something altogether different that is, you know, very, very um, concerned about um, the future of life on the planet. You know, I think it's very interesting how you bring that up because of the expediency and making an argument uh, right now. It seems like a lot of our political arguments that we do make are showing how things do uh, directly are infringing on, on some some right of somebody else, even if they aren't right. Like, uh, how does the way that you look cause harm to me? And then I hear a lot of arguments on trying to figure out a way that that does cause a harm to me. So then it's somehow infringing on me, even though I don't think it necessarily is in that moment. But another thing that I've been thinking of uh, while we're having this conversation is the place of vulnerability uh, in this conversation. You know, a lot of what I'm hearing again is 
what we need to do or how we feel in terms of making ourselves uh, feel less susceptible to harm. Would vulnerability, if we were more vulnerable, would that maybe be something that could help us out in this situation, Dr. Brown? So in some ways, oddly enough, that vulnerability is how we got here. Yeah. It, it, because it relates to when we think about things like um, Oprah Winfrey and the sharing of everyone's private experience um, has made many more people in some ways positively tolerant and compassionate um, toward others. I mean, honestly, as as strange as cancel culture may be, there is another way in which we as a society are are much more conscientious and caring, you know, toward people with disabilities, toward, um, you know, pets and animals. I mean, you can go back just 20 years and see much worse kind of normative behavior with respect to individuals who appeared not normal. And I and so on the one hand, this vulnerability has been a very positive thing. We are in some ways becoming a more compassionate society, but we are also at the same time becoming so tolerant that we are allowing or accepting intolerance. And that's where I think what we really need to do is get back to a a stronger sense of how one treats others is really important in the judging of an individual. So I would argue that it's not just, you know, you impacting me. It's about how do I treat you? That's right, Dr. Brown. And we're going to have to end it there. Dr. Brown, an expert in national elections, candidate strategies and political scandals. Thanks for joining us on Detroit Today. Thank you. And Professor Jaquette, an associate professor of environmental studies at New York University. Thanks for joining us on Detroit Today. Thanks for having the conversation. You're listening to 1019 WDETFM, Detroit's NPR station, your connection to news, music, and conversation. If you enjoyed the show, tell a friend, and we will see you when Stephen returns tomorrow. <laughs>